got to snap out of it at a certain point because you're here for a greater reason and you've got to dedicate yourself to solving those bigger problems. All right, we're here today with Elena Shear. Born and raised in Delaware, Ohio, Elena Shear graduated from Ohio University with a degree in broadcast journalism. She went on to win two Associated Press Awards as a radio reporter and news anchor for WTVN and WNCI. After fleeing an abusive relationship, becoming a single mom, and nearly losing everything, Elena rebuilt her career by learning digital and tech. In the span of five years, she climbed from making $8 an hour to growing her small business to nearly $2 million per year in revenue. In 2016, Elena created a national network for women in digital and tech, where she fought fearlessly for equal pay and opportunity. I've known Elena now for a long time. I remember our kind of early meeting back uh, when I was before I started my company, and you were just relatively new in business too, right? And, um, and we started working together and uh, became friends. And I've loved really sharing your journey with you and, and being a client at times and being a supporter and being a friend all along and just seeing you evolve and, and work through various stages in life and work. It's amazing. And I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on today and have an opportunity to have you share your full journey with our audience. Thank you, Brad. And, it, and likewise to you, it's been, it's been equally as incredible to see your career and your journey, you know, that getting from where we were then. And I, it was about, I date things on how old my son was. So he's 14 now. So I think it was about um, 11 years ago. And you were my second official client of my first business. And it was just such a um, leap of faith for you to hire me, you know, being new to the digital marketing business. And we were both, I feel like when we met, what's interesting is I had found my path for, I had finally found, I'd finally started to kind of figure it out. And of course, it's an everlasting journey, but you were a bit lost when we met. I think I remember it. It was in your eyes, you know, and, and whenever we, we met, you know, I just want to give you a big hug. You were just going through so much, mm -hmm. but you were also like just so incredible and always challenging me um, and pushing me. And yeah, anyhow, thanks for having me. It's been fun. You're you're the best. I just love hanging out with you, chatting with you, and to have this time today with listeners here too. Thanks. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you're right. I mean, if it, it, it felt like it was longer than that because I started my company, it'll be ten years in June. And but that that could be perfect timing. We probably started uh, working together, you know, a year or two before I started. And if that's the case, I was definitely <laughs> feeling all kinds of stuff that kind of ultimately led to starting my company. So um, it's fun, you know. I, I you know, in this podcast, we've been really talking about you know people's full life journey, and we'll we'll get to the beginning of yours. But you know, I think it's just interesting and and kind of fun that you started there, including the part of me that was lost, right? Yeah. Because 
you know, that was very true for me for a period of time. And knowing people who knew me then mm-hmm. uh, is part of what makes the whole thing very full and, and satisfying, you know, and, and rewarding to, to have people that have known you kind of through those stages. Right. And, and it's funny because at other times you have been, you know, completely you found yourself. And then there are moments where I was lost and I come to you and say, what should I do in this moment? And that's when you see your colleagues and friends going through life and you see them overcome those challenges. And, and it's, it's, you see it, you feel it, you hear it. It's inspiring because you know that incredible people like Brett Kaufman are also challenged sometimes and go through these changes. And that's been personally very inspiring for me to watch. But yeah, even just your physical appearance. I love your beard. Just for the record, everyone, I love Brett's beard. Okay. I vote keep forever. Uh-huh. Yes, you were. we were talking before <laughs> on cool. whether or not we should do a beard or no beard post. And I said I didn't care, so I wasn't going to ask. But for the record, you voted and, and you like beards. So um, thank you for that. <laughs> I do. That, that led to a whole conversation about gender, which maybe we'll get back to um, <laughs> because it was kind of interesting. We could probably do that you know, for a full hour. But I do want to start um, at the beginning. I want people to see you and your full life journey. Um, I think part of this, you know, being seen is part of the theme of the podcast that, you know, a lot of times people look at people like you and they say, wow, you know, look how much she's accomplished. Look what she's up to. Look how successful she is. And they don't know, you know, what happened along the way. And unfortunately, I mean, you're in the, the, the digital media business. You know that oftentimes people only see the best part of uh, your life and they don't see the full picture. And so that's a big part of why we do this show is to highlight the full journey. So maybe you could take us um, back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about what was it like to be uh, your, uh, a child in your family, the kind of early childhood memories and the dynamics of your family and, and all that fun stuff. Well, I was born in Delaware, Ohio, um, right up the road from where I live now. Um, I'm, it's incredible to be back here, actually. But I was born in Delaware. My father was a family physician, and my mom owned a store on Sandusky Street. She had a retail shop. And so that came... My mom, there were six of us. She supported dad through medical school by taking care of the kids. She hadn't, they hadn't anticipated having kids at the time that they did. And she actually couldn't finish her college education. So she was one quarter away from a degree at OSU and she had to stop. And that theme, her desire for a career, her desire for a college education was something that my father always, always supported in every possible way, you know, emotionally, financially. Um, taking care of us when she was working to just make that a reality for her. So she was a woman in the 80s who had this incredible shop and had her career while her husband was a doctor. So it went, but it was, they were both entrepreneurs at the end of the day. They were both out there working for themselves. And when dad built his own doctor's office, that was a business. And so she supported him there as well. And, and it's also worth noting, my father was born in Worthington, Ohio, and he was born, my grandmother escaped uh, escaped Germany. She was Jewish and she got out on the last refugee ship that made it to the shores of the United States. One week later, the St. Louis came and they sent it back. And every 
every person on that ship was sent to the death camps. So we, I'm here because she actually had um, a, a relative in the German army who got her off and safely. And her family pulled money together for that last boat ticket, which was $2,200 in today's value. Got her onto the ship. She was here and she had my dad. So, And my mom is from the south side of Chicago. So she was very tough and didn't put up with anything. And my dad taught me how to love and care for everyone, no matter what, and no matter where they came from. And so my father was like this calm, just grateful, filled with... And he was raised by his mom, who I never got to meet because she died of cancer when she was 50. And so there was my dad who's this calm presence, this caretaker, physician, and my mom who's this you know, spirited South Side of Chicago, I'm going to do what I want to do, Polish <laughs> woman raised by Polish uh, immigrants in Chicago. So I was one of six. There, there were so many of us. I was the third. I came after my mom had had three miscarriages. So I had my two older and then three between who we lost and then me. And they had told her she would never be able to have kids again. So I was always this kind of miracle child which created a lot of resentment by my siblings. <laughs> you know, so I was set out for, for some sibling rivalries from the beginning that I couldn't even control. But my parents just adored me and showered me with this, this love. And I was so, so fortunate to be born into their lives at a time when things had stabilized. Dad had gotten through medical school. He had his practice. Mom had her shop. My earliest memories are helping mom with the shop and falling asleep. I can remember staying so late setting up the Christmas displays because she had beautiful stuff for sale. Crabtree and Evelyn soap before anyone knew what it was, like gifts and yummy, delicious things for sale. Um, But I would fall asleep on the floor working with her till midnight. And I loved helping customers. Tell me, you know, I, I think I'm already getting a pretty clear sense. And, and I always love when this is a part of the story. You know, oftentimes there's a focus on trauma or abuse or other aspects of people's childhood that, you know, are a little more difficult. But I love to elevate the stories of love and an incredible role modeling equally. You know, I think that that's what we're all striving for. Um, You know, all of us want to create love. Uh, I shouldn't say all of us, I do. And 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 it's super important to me to spread that message that, you know, we want to be loving parents, that we want to create loving households, loving spouses, to have parents that we love, right? And, And so to hear you describe your childhood as as loving is really beautiful and and then there's also kind of this aspect of the entrepreneurial part which is really strong right you yes i, I love that you even um, describe your father who's you know clearly a caretaker committed to helping other people caring for other people but but you're right entrepreneur, right? And so there's that piece too. So tell me a little bit more about kind of what's it like, you know, you've got these strong, loving entrepreneurial influences early in your childhood. You know, I'm sure you're not really thinking, you know, oh, well, I'm going to be an entrepreneur when I grow up. I mean, maybe that comes in at some point, but you know, you're having that experience. And and so tell me a little bit more about what that experience was really like. It was, it was, 
There was never a dull moment in our household. There was always, you know, something going on, whether it be with mom and her stores. And ultimately, she sold the store. She she lost her second store. We had we had moved to Michigan briefly in my childhood. We were there for about four years, and she had tried to open another one and failed. And so that failure really actually gave her just a intense uh, bout of depression when I was a teenager. So we had... So in my childhood, the early childhood is just... Their love was always there in spite of that stress because my mother had had a really rough childhood. Her mom had abandoned her um, and her father had raised her. And there was... Uh, she was just constantly, constantly wanting to reverse that trend. She wanted to be the best mom she could possibly be given the fact that she did not have a role model for motherhood. And, and that was something she openly, transparently talked about. There was no pretense by my parents that they were perfect, that they had all of the answers. They were very open in, this is who we are. We are flawed human beings. You know, This year, whatever year it was, you know, your mom is suffering from her mental health problems pretty intensely and dad would help coach us through it and then we would we would get through to the other side and the thing the thing though is that my mom and dad were in love with each other <laughs> they were mm-hmm. madly in love and i mean i remember i would have friends come over um when i was i remember when i was you know 12 or 13 as a young teenager and was, my mom and dad would be kissing in the kitchen or something. And I'm like, stop it, you guys. It's so embarrassing. You're kissing in front of my friends. And my friends would say, oh my gosh, do your parents always do that? I'm like, they're, yeah, they're always, don't your parents kiss? And they're like, no, not like that. And so I, <laughs> I my dad also, he's like, he'd be listening to a song on the radio and say, this song reminds me of your mom, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. And, or he'd pull the car over. If she was in the car, he saw some wildflowers. He would pull the car over and pick them for her in front of us. And it, it wasn't at all for show. He was just desperately in love with my mom and the feeling was mutual. So they were just, you know, soulmates and, and it was an egalitarian household, you know, there was equal opportunity for both parents. Um, but my mom eventually went back to college. When we, we moved to Athens, Ohio for high school, there were six of us, as I mentioned. Dad got a job there and we could afford college tuition for all of us. Otherwise, there was, there was no way. So the rule was you go to OU for free or you can go somewhere else so you get a scholarship. Mom went back, got finished that college degree, went on, got her master's at OU and then got a full ride to Georgetown and got her PhD in her late 40s and 50s. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of love, but there was also a lot of stress, you know, with, with having a parent with mental health issues. And then my father was diagnosed with cancer when I was a sophomore in college or a freshman. I was 20, I was 20 years old and he found out in 1998 and, um, no, I was 19 and he found out in 1998 in December and he had adenocarcinoma. He had three brain tumors and he was gone. Uh, four and a half, five months later, he died. Wow. And he was 51 years old. As I mentioned before, his mother had been 50 when she died. So cancer, you know, he just, he was devastated. He was, he was depressed. He was angry. He was just, as a physician, he knew there was no hope. Mm-hmm. He knew. And mm-hmm. I, I think... He was that, depressed and yeah. angry after the diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was very, very... 
you know, it's not at all like what you see in the movies. Um, still to this day, if I see a cancer ad with mm-hmm. a healthy model with a shaved head or a wig, I get mm-hmm. so angry. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we need to do as a society is face uh, sickness and face things like poverty and face things like sexism and racism and really face them. Mm-hmm. And, and then we can start to really pour our funds or our money or our time to, to, to solve these problems. But seeing him go through that, um, you know, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. And of course, my mother was just absolutely devastated. So yeah, that, yeah. that wrapped up my childhood. And that's why I have this gray streak in my hair. <laughs> it's really pronounced depending on my hairstyle, but I got one of those lovely, awesome trauma streaks. So I carry my dad with me every day. I say he's here. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and let, let, maybe let's back up a little bit first. You know, I want to talk about your mother's mental health challenges. And, you know, you mentioned that being pretty um, out. And, you know, you, you talk about kind of facing these challenges head on. And it seems like they were, they were kind of um, brought to the surface uh, very clearly head on in your in your you know family unit um, tell me a little bit more about you know what she was struggling with and and kind of how that um, was presented and and impacted you so the first time I always knew my parents were were you know that my mom had and they, they were exceptional you know and 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 there's this definition of normal. And this is the problem, a lot of the challenge with mental health today is that we have this definition of normal and this perception of normal. And digital social media makes it so... It's just making it even more pronounced when we see these perfect lives when when lives are not perfect by any means. Um, And she had... You know, really severe clinical depression when I was a teenager. And she, she could not, you know, move off of her couch for days at a time. She would just be watching the television. And, and it was so stunning to see that that could happen to somebody. And as a teenager, you know, I have diary entries where I'm just like, why can't she just snap out of it? You know, why can't she just be here with us and, and be present? And it, now as an adult, and, and I, I realized it then as a young adult too, she really could not control it. So, you know, as, as a result, I think, you know, I'm really sensitive to others and when they're going through things. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you needed a big hug and you seemed really lost. I can tell, I can, you know, I can pick up on people's emotional and mental state and very sensitive to it, which is something that I use as a strength um, always to try to be there for people, um, whether it's in business or personal life. But it was so hard to see her go through that. And she still is, you know, she still has issues to this day. Um, and she hates to talk about it or acknowledge that it's it's a reality. And I think too, the thing about my mom's generation is that they really, the stigma on therapy and mental health was so much different than it is today. And it still lingers today for sure. But the idea of going to therapy felt like a defeat, you know, but eventually she did and she got she got herself into a good place. And then we lost my dad. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And I want to talk a little bit more about what you 
developed in that time? I mean, you, you spoke to your sensitivity for others and certainly that plays a big role as you um, start to get into your career and, and even, you know, your most recent uh, career. So we can come back to that. I want to just make sure we acknowledge the passing of your father and that experience and this Mm -hmm. dynamic between your mom coming out, working through, and then, you know, this, what seems like just like out of nowhere and pretty sudden and, 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 and tragic loss of your father, you know, being this person that was so vibrant and, and loving to, you know, quickly, you know, um, losing him. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about kind of that impact. And, and you know, this is like a, a, a important time in life. You're 19 years old. You know, what what does that do to you? And, and kind of how does that start to impact you or inform what happens for you through college and, and afterwards? You grow up quickly. You know, you're, for me, it, it was instantly really tough to relate to friends in college who were, had nowhere near the amount of worries that I suddenly had. So on top of the grief, we had, you know, my mom and we all immediately, and there again, there's, the six of us, but some of we all dealt with it in different ways. And something I learned about grief, the ways um, some we each deal with it differently. Some of us completely shut down and some of us face it head on. And, and, and there's no right or wrong way at all. But it was interesting to see how the six of us handled it differently. And my two, my three younger siblings, you know, were still teenagers. And you know, mom had to, she chose to sell the house we were living in. So the house was gone. Um, Dad had a, a small life insurance policy, but he was, you know, he had actually cut it in half like a month before he found out to save some money every month. And he was so upset. So we were financially wrecked. Mom, you know, was trying to figure it out. She was getting her PhD and I became a caretaker. We all did. And my siblings and I still to this day kind of take turns with a caretaker role. And for some, at some moments, some of us just check out for years at a time of, of um, that, the, the guilt or the, the caretaker role of mom. But, you know, when I asked my dad, when he was, when he was dying, we um, spent, I spent as much time with him as I possibly could. And I said, what do you think about? What are you thinking about right now? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about your mom. I lost my mom when I was your age and I know you guys are going to be okay, but I'm worried about your mom. And now I know, I mean, he knew more clearly of what her mental health state was like. We were kids. We didn't know how bad it was. Um, And she did not have a support network of other family members or aunts and grandparents. We don't have that. So, you know, it's, I don't know. I've felt like an orphan ever since I was 19. I love my mom to death. She's, She's my mom, but um, she's you know she's not capable of caretaking, and so I've been basically, you know, she'll kill me if she hears this. I'll make sure she never hears this podcast. <laughs> she'll be yelling at me for weeks. Yeah. But really, it's very, it's very, very much like an orphan is how I felt, and and the shock to the system was absolutely stunning. So I grew up. I I was already mm-hmm. working. I've always I went and got jobs as soon as I could to pay for my first car, and I, you know, my very very first job 
paid job was to hand out newspapers to freshmen at OU. I handed out the Athens News for nine bucks an hour, which was a lot of money. And I just dove into my work. And I remember I went to the news. I was on on the radio at that point um, at the very beginning of my career. And, And my news director, he was a big grizzly guy. He used to always you know, lose his temper with me as he was teaching me, but he was so great. He taught me everything. And he he looked at me and he said, didn't your dad just die three days ago? I'm like, yeah. And he said, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And I said, I have to. I have to be here. I have to be here. If I'm not here, I'm going to completely lose my mind. Um, mm-hmm. So I dove into work. I was um, a very determined young woman, um, still am, work work, work, work. Maybe that's why I'm a workaholic. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, so tell me a little about that. I mean, the dive into work, the three days after you had to be there. What is that? I mean, was that like just your comfort zone, your place of of safety and security? And, And is that because you kind of grew up in this environment where that was honored and it and it just felt like it was in some ways maybe honoring your father or honoring yourself. Um, Tell me about kind of, you know, I mean, you say workaholic and that's like, I think, you know, I think, you know, um, when we talk about addiction, I think that work and social media, so we could probably talk about both, um, are, are, and maybe food would be um, in a similar, maybe not even, but, but oftentimes work and, and, you know, use of technology is like the most accepted addictions in our society. And they're quite, you know, potentially harmful and, and dangerous, literally. I mean, you can work to work yourself to death, you know, yeah. the, the phrase, right? So tell me though, like sometimes um, I, I think it's very healthy. It can be very energizing, can be very, you know, powerful. You can do incredible work. What was it like for you early on, at least, um, to be so engaged in your work through this time of, of, you know, challenge. I think it was definitely an escape from what I was facing at home. I mean, the alternative was to go um, be there, you know, at the house where mom was going through her suffering and just to get a break and enter a place where no one is asking you questions and you're just doing your job and you can escape from it. And you can also control the things at work, you know? And when you're going through a grief like that, which I'm sure so many of our listeners have gone through, um, tragic loss is not, you know, in a unique state. But for, for me, that was the way that I could cope. You know, it's definitely a coping mechanism to just go back to normal as quickly as possible, the new normal. Um, because you're never the same again after you go through something like that. You are never the same again. You never will be. You can never have what was back again. You evolve and you learn how to live with it. Um, my analogy, whenever I meet someone who's gone through a loss and I'm, I'm right there, you know, I, I explain it a lot like, um, you know that vampire movie with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt? Interview with a vampire? I do, I do. Oh my God, it's so good. It's been a long time. It's so good. But Tom Cruise says, you know, he bites him and he's like, welcome, you know, welcome to the vampire world. And at first, Brad Pitt's like, oh my God, I'm so mad. Why'd you do this to me? Um, But Tom Cruise has like centuries of experience of being a vampire. So he's much, 
you know, calmer about it. And I think grief is the same way when you, I've now have 20, 22 years of experience and in grief and it never gets any easier. You miss them like hell every single day, but you learn how to live with it. It becomes the way I describe it is it's as if I have a third arm that you can't see. No one else can see it, but I can feel it. And it's here with me every single day. And I just learn how to walk around with it. I learn how to accommodate it. Um, But for me, that was the very beginning of learning how to get through this. And the shock of his loss is still with us because my mother has not moved through her grief properly. You know, So it's still here. We're still in this as a family, this aftermath of the loss of this incredible man. so yeah, it's it's really interesting to try to find your balance as a young adult without parents to guide you. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I I just hearing you say that, I sympathize with you. And you know, again, this is maybe why this podcast hopefully means something to other people because I think this is an experience that you're not alone in. That people experience loss, they experience grief, they experience tragic um, loss and deep, profound grief. And um, to hear you say that, you know, 22 years later, it's still here with you, the way you described it as a third arm and, and, and the way that your mother has not been able to move through it, you know, I think is really real and honest and important for people to know that sometimes these things um, don't ever go away. Um, Yet, you've also really um, been able to be very productive and and you know, become a mother yourself, and um, raise a family, and 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 you know, do great things in your career. So, you know, it's not like it's um, something that has kept you from life either, right? And I think that's you know also really important for people to know and see that it can be both. It can be both. Absolutely, and it makes you stronger. I felt because. You know, no matter how stressful a day at work is or a day with the family is, you can always remind yourself. And it's, it's, it's always there for me. Is nobody called today telling me that they're, they have cancer, you know, or that nobody died today. Nobody mm-hmm. I love. I, you know, and so when you really put it in perspective, um, you, can, you can face challenges in, with perspective, I guess. With that perspective, you can apply it to it. It doesn't make the things that you go through in life any easier. It's not like a magic power or anything. But I do think I grew up a lot quicker than others and and dove into this intensity of the reality and cold hard facts of what life is and when it ends Very at a young age, which I always then treated as, okay, this is obviously horrendous and awful, but I've got to use this as a strength. I have got to figure out how to use this as a strength. And that's what my father would have wanted me to do. And he did it, you know? So when I realized, you know, he lost his mother at the same age that I was when I lost him. And he always was grieving for his mom, but he, he made this beautiful life for himself. And he always, for us, pulling over the side of the road, grabbing the flowers, taking us on hikes, always saying, you, when we were busted watching television, we got in so much trouble. <laughs> He would say, you're wasting your time. Come on, let's go outside. Let's go play. Let's go do this. So he, mm-hmm. he gave me this like 
insatiable thirst for life. One, one night, it was thunderstorming in Michigan and we lived a mile from the lake and he woke me up in the middle of the night and he was an ER doctor at this point. So that's important for the story, but you should not do this at home. But you know, there's this thunderstorm coming in on Lake Michigan and he woke me up to go swimming with him in the middle of the storm. And I can still feel the waves on my face. I can, I'm there with him. And he was just incredible. He would, he would always make sure that we are experiencing life to the fullest. And he, I don't know if he would have been that way if he, if he wouldn't have lost his mom or maybe he would have because she barely made it out of Germany. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's, it's, this was something I was thinking about earlier when you were speaking and it's, it's uh, helpful to kind of hear you elaborate on him because I was wondering how, you know, when you have somebody that is living so fully and role modeling life in a way that you so admire and are so attached to and connected to and, and feeling this, this, you know, super loving being that is your father, it's, it's almost like it makes it that much harder to lose somebody like that because they were so great, mm-hmm. right? They were so yeah. impactful. Yet that same impact is what you can use to really carry them on. And maybe, maybe there's something too, and this is just, you know, kind of, uh, a, a little bit of my own spiritual beliefs coming in. Not that this has to be true for you or anyone else, but maybe there is some um, there's some explanation or, or rationale for why somebody like that does leave the earth so quickly. It's, yeah. it's almost like part of their um, legacy and impact on you, and then maybe others is this this incredibly you know, impactful experience that, that almost has to end that way. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm just wondering for you, like, uh, really, you know, how much of that is true? And, and, and more importantly, I think as you go forward, how does it really continue to be a part of who you are and what you do? I think, you know, my, what I've always said is he was an angel on earth and it was time for him to go. You know, he did not have anything left to learn because in my eyes, he was absolutely perfect. And in his students' eyes and the community, I mean, you know, his funeral, the church was just packed. They had to put people in the basement. There was no room. Um, he just had such a big impact. He was such a big person, but in such a different way than I am. He, would, he was much more quiet about it, but he had this, this impact it reverberated. I think part of it, it's a combination of, yes, there could be definitely, you know, there's something beyond our control that is made, you know, there's a greater plan for things. But also it depends on, you know, we don't want to lose people in vain. So there's a combination where it makes you maybe more determined to, I'm not going to lose them in vain. I'm going to so I think it's a combination of both things. And and yes, everyone's legacy lives on through the memories that they've left and and the how they've inspired their children or others to live, you know, in their name. Um so yeah, it's 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 pretty fascinating and I'm always carrying him with me every single day and with my own kids and trying and then reminding myself that he was not perfect. Is really important too. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. cuz he sure, yeah. he wasn't perfect, you right. know. 
Right. Yeah, I think that's really important too, because sometimes you hold yourself up to some standard that really wasn't even real and and, right. and nobody's perfect. Let's talk a little bit going forward now with your work, your career. Um, you, you know, mentioned that you were, you know, working in 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 broadcast journalism, working in, in the news um, world. Uh, tell me a little bit more about kind of how life starts to unfold for you in kind of that, um, you know, uh, early young adult part. Well, I, I graduated from OU with a degree in journalism and I had already been working on the air and radio. I absolutely loved the work itself. I loved, um, you know, being a conduit of stories and also, it was really, really depressing. <laughs> and when you have like, you know, tendencies toward depression and anxiety, which I do like my mom, but nowhere near as severe. But, you know, going and reporting on fires and deaths and tragedies constantly, it was really, really tough. Um, and, and reading the AP news ticker and seeing every single news story that was possibly coming down the pipes that the mainstream news was just ignoring, you know, or, or they didn't have enough room to talk about. So it was really a, a bad combination on that level. But also the newsrooms, you know, radio is very, was very, and, and probably still is dominated by men. And there was very little room for women in radio. And I could see that. I started to see that. I saw that you wouldn't have two female news anchors, for example. There were no female hosted shows on the radio station I was on, which was 610 WTVN. And, and I couldn't find female hosted radio shows. And it was 2003. So ultimately, I was interviewing for a new radio job and the, the producer of the show, I had recently been married. He said, are you planning on getting pregnant anytime soon? Because we, we'd love to have a pregnant co-host. I said, why? He said that they're good for ratings. You know, the listeners love to go along with the birth and the story and they like to name the baby. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, so that's uh. when I decided to leave my radio career. There were a number of other things. I can get into the political reasons, but I realized too that the media was not unbiased. In fact, um, that they were being censured by uh, corporate ad dollars and the Iraq mm -hmm. war had happened. And anyway, it, I started to see that the journalism was changing and I was way too opinionated to be an unbiased journalist. Um, so all those things compounded and I quit and started a career in marketing and advertising. And I took a huge pay cut and I started over, but I did not have a child yet. I could do that. And I knew it wasn't right. And so I left that career that I had already invested my entire college career in and working. So it had been about you know, a six or seven year career in it. And I started over as an intern at a PR agency. Mm. And, and, and do you think that, that that kind of willingness to start over, you know, I, I, I've kind of learned over time, I think people really make a jump um, like that, a, 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 a leap into something different where they leave a, a good career, or a good paying job or something they really thought that they always wanted or studied. They do it for one of two reasons. Either they're drowning where they are, they just can't take it, they, they hate it, or they're really on fire, excited about what they want to do instead. Um, and sometimes it's both. I, I, was, I was probably both. But you know, I'm asking you, what was it for you uh, at that point? Were you really passionate about what you were going towards or you just needed to get out of where you were? I was, it was, so I could have gotten that job in Denver with that guy asking me if I was going to get pregnant. 
Although I don't know, maybe when I told him I wasn't going to get pregnant, maybe I wouldn't get the job. But I could have stayed in radio. And I I, I think, and I, I know what you're saying. I, I see that too with folks where they get to that point where they're absolutely drowning. That was not the case for me, maybe a little bit, but I also wasn't like super psyched about a career in marketing. I was pretty scared. It was a big leap. I think for me, what I realized was I don't want to be in this industry where I don't see a path forward of where I want to get with my life. But I know that over here, it's not exactly right, but it's closer to what I should be doing. And I'm going to try this to learn something new and see if it leads me to the answers because I by no means had them. So that was 2004 and we still didn't have... you know, Facebook had just begun. Um, but eventually that led me to discovering digital and digital communication, which was absolutely and still is to this day, my absolute thrill and love for just from a, you know, trade, just something that you just know how to do. But no, I I don't know. That's really good. I I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I think it's also important that it wasn't so black and white for you. And I think that's probably true too, um, that some people just need to make a move, a shift and start somewhere that they think might be related to something that you don't always have to have it all figured out. You might not have total clarity when you make a move like that, but making a move. In fact, I just had a friend this morning kind of describe to me that they were stuck. They had been feeling really stuck. And the person that I was talking to, I think has been stuck for quite some time. And, you know, I had been trying to be helpful. And my advice to him was like, you got to just do something. Yes. Right. Like you, yep. you, you got to just get moving, right? Figure, you don't have to have it all figured out. Do something, get moving and, and let it unfold from there. And that sounds to me more like what you were doing. Yeah. Well, and, and so the guys that my radio show, I was on a morning show. I was on the morning zoo in Columbus and I'm still friends with Dave and Jimmy today. They're great guys. But at the time, um, it was a pretty bad experience <laughs> for all of us, I suppose. But they ended up firing me without cause. And I was 24 years old and I lost my job. So that first big job in radio, um, and it really boiled down to the fact that they wanted to to not have a third anchor on the show. They really didn't like how I would challenge their assumptions about women. And I was very... you know, Anyway... I did get booted from it. And then I was interviewing for other jobs, but it didn't feel right. And I could have gotten those jobs though, but I knew, I said, I don't want to experience this again. I don't want to be fired without cause. I have a brain. I'm not going to go get pregnant in another radio station. It was just like this very clear, where do you go in this career? Where do you go in this industry? And I I took that leap of just, this feels right. And, and people do need to do that. Even if you will not have it figured out before you take a jump, you never will. When you make a huge change in your life, there's no way it just feels 100% right and everything is instantly fine. <laughs> you right. have to put your toe into it and make those changes and then see what happens. And I think that especially these days with COVID, especially these days, whether it's at home or at work, you, you've got to be a survival mechanism is being open to something that you thought was one thing, being totally different the next day, being open to change. And so tell me, you you eventually start your own business from the marketing career becomes your business. And and you're married at the time? I was a single mom by that point. So I, okay. I so I I was married when I started my marketing career. And then 
that was a very short-lived marriage. We were married for a year. It was or two a year or two years. Oh my gosh. It was very short. We I did find myself pregnant unexpectedly. And during my pregnancy, um, my ex-husband started to push me around physically. This was something that I had never seen in my own childhood. I was shocked and I immediately planned leaving him. <laughs> I had absolutely zero tolerance for anybody uh, physically. Um, touching me, of course, but also are physically abusing me. But there was, it, it never got to that point where so many other women are, where it's really bad. For me, it was just, I could tell it was on the horizon with this guy. And things were really bad otherwise as well. Um, so I left him when my son was four months old, moved in with my mom in Athens, went from Columbus to Athens, quit that marketing internship and started all over for $8 an hour as the secretary of my first radio station. But I had a job and I was away from him. From there, I went to... I, I, I got a job at the local visitor, vis, visitors bureau as their communications director. And I learned how to develop and build websites and search engine optimization. And I did some social marketing on MySpace and discovered digital. And then... I called a headhunter a year later, got a job in Columbus at a big agency, brought my son. Of course, he's with me. And I was a single mom when I started my own agency after facing um, at my ad agency job. My boss told me he couldn't be alone in a room with me because he didn't know what would happen. And he was serious. He couldn't be alone in a room with me. He kept you know, making passes at me at work. I told HR and they tried to move me to a different department instead of reprimanding him. And he was my mentor. So mm, interesting. I mean, let's let's kind of uh, I know that was a lot, lot Brad. It was a lot. <laughs> I want to talk about it, you know, because um, you know, what I'm uh, what I'm seeing, and maybe it's because I know the rest of your journey to this point is tremendous courage. And and strength really um, to make the moves that you're making along the way, which I I would imagine in part comes from this early childhood having the stability that you had and seeing your um, parents as entrepreneurs and taking risk on their own and working through issues and coming out on the other side, you know, at times at least, right? That's got to be part of you know what becomes you. Um, because you make these jumps out of radio, you know, as people, and, and also the other piece that keeps coming in here is there's a, a real kind of, um, you know, female empowerment uh, struggle that you're experiencing in the work world and life. You know, you have a, an abusive husband. I mean, the courage to leave that. You know, you you make it sound like, well, I just you know wasn't gonna you know let it, get, but like yeah. m m that's a tough thing. Most women, or I don't know, a lot of women, I would imagine, um, have a hard time. You have a four month old, right. right? To make that jump is is incredibly courageous, and then to continue to be faced with this sexism in the radio industry and in the morning show. I mean, that whole that whole era was like just filled with. Um, Stuff that today you would just be totally ostracized for, right? That was like you were expected. It was it was part of the the shtick, it was. right? And and similarly true in the 
I don't know if it was specific, it wasn't, but but maybe more prevalent in the agency world where, but definitely in, in just um, the work environment in general, men being the um, more likely f- uh, uh, figures of empowerment, right? That had, the, had the, the jobs, were the mentors, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, you really were experiencing it in a lot of different stages of your of your life. You know what's funny though? I hadn't put that string together until uh, June of 2016. And it was well, so this this if you'd like, I can tell you, connect that. Yeah, sure, please. Um, so so I quit the agency. Again, they tried to move me to a totally different department in, in an area that I didn't specialize. And I was so confounded by this situation. And I was only 26. Seven or twenty-eight? Gosh, I should have had my crown. I don't know. I was in my twenties. That's 20s. okay. Yeah. And I, I start my agency. I meet you. I meet my first handful of clients, and and it was courageous. It was terrifying. Um, we, most most people don't do that. I I think, I you know, growing up the way we did. So you know, mom and dad got and built everything that they had on their own. You know, and and mom coming from a really poor household in Chicago, and dad. I'm paying his way through medical school. And yeah, I don't know. I just, it, that it's just in me to just fight for what you believe in. And I have a really strong moral code that I refuse to break for anything. So money can't ever compromise that. I, I have proven that over and over again in life where I'm like, nope, not going to go for that, even though it makes, it might make rational sense. Um, I can't just look the other way. I have to. Do something about it. So I start my agency, but it was years into the agency. Things were going great. I still hadn't connected. Wow, this happened in my radio career. This happened at the agency. How much money have I lost? How much opportunity just because of my womanhood, just because of this, this thing that I can't change or control? And I was at my agency and we, I noticed that when I, I brought a man to new business meetings, to pitches, and we were usually pitching men, you know, still Brett today, 80% of C-level positions are held, are held by men, only 20% by women. So we we're always usually pitching to men. And if I brought a man, we won twice as much business in half the time. I mean, they, there was a guy next to me and he was brand new. I was training him. And I remember the CEO looked at this young man who knew nothing, not much about what we did. And he said, do you agree with what she's saying to this young man? Do you agree with her? And of course, he's like, yes, of course I agree. <laughs> She's my boss. Yes. But they, we had this undeniable ability to sell more if we brought men into the room. And so we started to do it. We brought men to every new business meeting, every account meeting, and things were great. Our sales were up. But I was depressed. It hit me. And that's when it all hit me. That's when that string came through. And it just... Something snapped inside of me. It was my tipping point. I was 37 years old. It was June of 16. And I felt depressed and dejected and didn't even want to go into my own company. Just this overwhelming feeling about what do you do about it? Sexism exists. I've been ignoring it. I've been trying to pretend like I can do everything a man can do. And here it is. And it's like realizing when you're 37 years old that you do have a handicap, which is something that you you know, have to try to figure out how to work around in life to succeed. And that's something a lot of women don't even like hearing when I say that. But it, it 
hit me. Something hit me. It all came cascading down. And I, um, I hate feeling depressed and helpless. I hate it. It's just a feeling I don't like. And so I wanted to try to solve it. So I called a meeting for women in digital in Columbus. I called it Columbus Women in Digital. I put it on LinkedIn. I said, hey, ladies, let's meet. Just, just us. Let's not have any men there. We're going to meet in the morning after we drop the kids off at daycare. Put that on LinkedIn and the thing sold out in three days. There were 100 some women who signed up. I had to stop the ticket sales and they all showed up. And I told my story from start to finish and you could drop a pin in the room. And I almost didn't do it. I was terrified. But my husband, my new... So I met my husband a long way. My amazing second husband. He's absolutely my soulmate. I finally found you know, my, a guy like my dad. But anyway, he said... All of these things happen to you. They all happen to you. You're not, why, what are you scared of? What? And I said, I'm scared that the women will, that they'll judge me, that they'll think I'm lying, that they think I'm making this up. Why am I doing this anyway? Why am I even doing this? And he said, because you have to tell your story and you are going to help other people. And all of this is true. It all happened. I said, I know, but it doesn't sound like it's true because <laughs> there's more stuff I haven't even told you, Brett. But when I did, the women, when I finished that story, women stood up and started to tell their stories. And of course, um, all of us in that moment, when, when we tell our stories and we tell them out loud and other women in particular hear them, and there's a philosopher, Rebecca Solnit. She's still here writing today. She's brilliant. She, um, she talks about this a lot, but we're freed from it. You know, and so it was an absolutely mm. magical moment that day. And I, yeah. I have my before that day in my life and the after. Before I discovered sisterhood and just being, you know, akin with other women instead of competing with them, and mm. after, and yeah. then that, yeah, yeah, it's it's really great to hear that. I also relate to that. Um, I gave this speech at the Chamber of Commerce last February where I told my story. And actually, the uh, end of the speech said something like, you know, we all have a story and your families need you to share your story. This community needs you to share your story. And most importantly, you need you to share your story. Yes. And I think it's all true. It's part of the reason why, again, I do this podcast is because these stories need to be shared. They're very cathartic and they're very healing for everyone involved. And they're very real. You know, like your husband said to you, like that actually did happen. Um, and, and what I think is great is when you can use your story to be of service, right? So you're not just running around talking about it. You're actually now doing something with it. You've created a group of women who have things in common that are going through challenges together, that can support each other, that can feed business to each other, that can deal with any number of issues Mm -hmm. together. That's now really a very uh, important act of service that you've made use of this story, uh, which, which I think is really ultimately what we should be doing. We should live life, have our experiences, all of them, right? And use them for our benefit and for the benefit of others. Absolutely agreed. If you think about the campfire, you know, primitive mankind, (laughs) you're telling stories around a campfire. 
and learning from your experiences so that it doesn't have to happen to someone else. Um, the, the women's group did take off. It's called Together Digital today, and it's still thriving even through COVID. Um, you know, we're, we're anxiously awaiting in-person events again, but so many women's lives have changed from it. And, and what I would say is I just don't... People would say, why are you doing this? Because I drove from city to city to city and just started to have more meetings like this. And I said, ladies, like we can help each other. We can. If we choose deliberately to help fight this by lifting each other up, by helping each other out, negotiating raises, paid maternity leaves. We've done all those things, giving each other encouragement in the face of adversity or the face of um, you know, discrimination from a boss. We're there for each other. And I said, why are you doing it? And I, I, I kept asking, why? Because they're so cynical. Why are you doing this? This is insane. And I said, I'm doing this because I don't want what happened to me to happen to anybody else, to any other young women. It doesn't have to happen. You know, today, if if my boss wouldn't have told me that he couldn't be alone in a room with me, <laughs> you know, maybe I would be an executive at that agency, or you yeah. know, who knows where. And it's just yeah. it's really important that we're all aware of that. And yeah, I, I agree completely. If you have a story that needs to be told, do whatever you can to get it out there. Yeah, uh, good. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I have got to turn to this most recent chapter or chapters in your life. Um, I got a phone call from you. I remember exactly where I was because I had just landed from a, a trip of some kind. I think a business trip and I was walking to my car and returned your phone call or got your phone call. Um, and you had a pretty important announcement that you had made. <laughs> so why don't you share with the audience a little bit about kind of what you've just gone through and the reasons why and kind of how that tied back to um, you know your your past. I mean, you you were you you know women in digital agency, and you make another pretty big, big, courageous decision. Go ahead and tell us, you know, kind of what happened. Well, you were one of the first to know. I had not announced it publicly. I was calling you to see you were one of the the people who I wanted to throw the idea by to see if it was viable because I trust you. I know that you will always tell me what you are thinking, that you do not sugarcoat anything, but yet, you know, you're also so brilliant in how you deliver any kind of advice. I'm not there with you yet. I'm I'm still one of those blunt people that my friends usually avoid like this. But, hey, but, uh, I'm just uh, I'm just making shit up as I go. Oh so. man, I knew you would tell me the truth, and 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 I could count on you for that. So so essentially, I build this women's group where I'm changing. I'm changing lives. We're changing each other's lives. Like people are just bananas for what the group is having, the impact that it's having on their careers. And I I had started to, you know, we're three years in at this point, I think three or four years into it. And I had started to say, well, what's what's next for me? You know, I'm not an operator. I'm a founder. I'm a creator. I, I like to have someone else operate a business. I knew that it was time for me to, to be, you know, moving on from that. And then so I go through, you know, this is about a four or five month period of really seriously, what's next for me? Um and then one of my members, who used to be a political consultant who had joined our group, messaged me and said, oh my gosh, you live in District 12, Congressional District 12. And I said, well, how in the heck do you know what Congressional District I live in? I don't even know <laughs> Congressional District I live in. And she said, you, you live in District 12 and they don't have anybody running for Congress against 
this guy named Troy Balderson, who I affectionately call Troy Balder who. Nobody knows who he is, but he's this <laughs> diabolical congressman who's one of the most conservative members of Congress, but he represents a very diverse district here in central Ohio that's changing. And she said, you should run for Congress. And I said, you're, you're out of your mind. That's nuts. You know, I am not a congressional candidate type person. I am, you know, deeply flawed. I've made lots of mistakes in life. Who knows? I don't know. I don't want to run for Congress. And it sounds like a terribly boring job. Um, but she got me on the phone and, and she said, no, really. But it, when I was saying all those things, it was my imposter syndrome. You know, um, mm-hmm. it really was. And, and everything that I had coached the women through in our group, suddenly I was on the spot and in the hot seat. Somebody was telling me, hey, you know what? You're capable of this. Not only could you do this, and yes, you are qualified to be a con- in Congress, but you should do it because this guy is awful and we've got to beat him and we don't have anybody up against him. And our very democracy is on the line. So, you know, I, of course, I, I meant I say to my husband, somebody is suggesting I run for Congress. And not just somebody, but a political consultant who actually knows what she's talking about. And he said, oh my gosh, you you do it. You've got to do it. And if you don't, I will. And he was so convincing. And the kids said, no, daddy, don't do it. You can't run. You'll you'll lose. Well, it turns out um, I called. So I started to call people privately like you and say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, And it turns out, you know, running for Congress. In the end, we lost. Flash forward. We really the whole the democratic party got you know lost across the country on different seats in ohio we won a supreme court seat but that's it i mean i we just got crushed we won the presidency but the democratic party is in this this state of upheaval right now and what was really fascinating brett is getting to be on the inside of what it takes to be a candidate for a federal office what flaws there are in that system right now for Democrats and what we can do to solve that. So the loss, the worst, first of all, running for office was unlike anything I've ever experienced. So how incredible is that? I got to do that and experience that. But the, it takes so much of your energy physically, mentally. It's just an intense amount of work. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I watched... Um the inauguration this year and I was a bit overwhelmed and surprised with the emotion that I had um, because I, you know, was, was happy about the outcome, you know, and I wasn't like a enormous Joe Biden fan or supporter. I personally maybe fell in the camp that I thought our country needed a more drastic kind of change than than he represented and i yet found myself very moved by that day and very hopeful and optimistic about actually the character and maybe the change that is possible and that maybe you know he's just the right person for where we are as a country right now but what i also was kind of left with was just how being uh at, in, in politics, uh, you know, certainly at a high level, is is potentially the ultimate form of service. You know, you really, really 
um, ideally have the ability to make really important change. And we've seen how important it can be. Uh, now, it often gets muddied up with the fabric of, of our political system, which is a bit, you know, maybe what you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I even like had a moment where I thought on that day, like, maybe that's something I would do someday. But what you just said <laughs> is why I won't do it. <laughs> because, because it, I no, I mean it. And this is probably uh, selfish no, and, and, and shallow and, and other, you know, things I'm, I'm maybe just not you know, evolved enough or, you know, I'm not proud to say, but the, the, the commitment physically, mentally, the time, the resources, it takes everything. And I'm not willing to give everything, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I want to give to my wife and to my kids and to my friends and to myself and, you know, and, and gosh, I mean, but that's what it takes. And it, and boy, is it important and I give you so much credit for Well, doing now I it. want to solve that. So here you just stated what needs to be solved. We have got okay. to make it so that people like you can run for office as our founding fathers wanted you to as a public service where it does not completely consume uh, your entire existence because you're on the phone fundraising. So that was really what it was. It's the call time. They call it call time. And, and your Congress people and your senators spend 60 to 80% of their time, depending on how competitive their district is, all year long, every year, as the Congress people, especially every two years, they're constantly fundraising. And, and who wants to do that? Who wants to sit on a phone and call strangers and raise money? And that's who you're recruiting. And it's hard. I did it. It was horrible. But there's also that part of it where it is completely a public service. It is. And, it, and that's how it should feel. It should feel that way. But how can we make it so that people from the private sector can engage in elected office in a way that fits with their career and their families? And right now in this country, you have to have, you have to be independently wealthy to fund your own campaign or retired, or maybe you're married and you have a spouse who brings in your income, or you're super young and you have no kids like AOC, God bless her, and she could run. Um, but it's a hell of a lot of work. And we get, if we don't figure this out and figure out how to fund campaigns with taxpayer dollars and free up time for people to truly be uh, elected officials and fulfill that promise, we're in deep trouble. And so it's, seeing the inside has given me now this like super knowledge of what we need to do to fix it. So now, you know, in true Elena fashion, I just want to <laughs> figure out how to, to solve it. And I'm not going to, Quit. I'm not going to give up on, on on fixing that because I'll tell you what, Brett, the the Democratic Party, and I'm sure the Republican Party is ahead of us on this, but still behind. But the political industry is, you know, stuck in the the 1970s and the way that they run their campaigns. It, we just, it's it's stunning to me at how behind the times they are from a tech and digital standpoint. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think there's like this potentially, and well, and I think. Look, by the way, you you lost, but um, I think you way outperformed everyone's expectations, and you made it pretty damn close. <laughs> you really did. You did, and um, I I don't think most people in the world. In fact, I I we did a fundraiser with you, and um, I had a couple people who were you know Republican friends of mine who said like 
you know, she doesn't have a chance, you know, no, no Democrats ever won in that district. Like, you know, it's, there's no way, you know, but, you know, I, I, I thought you did have a chance and you, and you came really damn close. Uh, and by the way, you know, the other part of that um, problem, um, which, which I think a lot of people would love to see solved is I, the amount of time I spend and the amount of money I spend um, getting those phone calls. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I don't want to get those phone calls any more than you want to make them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's never ending. And it's, it's like broken both ways. It is. Um, it is. And the, the donors, so if you're a, if you donate to a political campaign and you give out your phone number, that's the end of you. You will get calls from Congress people all over the country if you're over a certain dollar amount. And and that's probably over $250 we're talking about. You'll get call after call after call. And the donors are saying, I'm exasperated. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Can't I just give money to one place or what can we? And we're asking taxpayers. We're asking people to donate their own money to make sure somebody they trust is elected. This is a fundamental problem. You're right. And, and you know what? I could go on, I won't, but there is a tech there. We can solve this and I can see exactly what we need to do. So I have tasked um, my campaign manager. We're going to keep our campaign committee open until redistricting. So many people have been asking me to run again. And the thing about it is at first I said, no way. Like a hundred thousand million percent no, like broken heart, hurt, sad, uh, sad me. <laughs> this this winter, right after, I just thought no, there's just no way. But if it all depends on the redistricting, they will redraw this district this year, and it it might be impossible for a Democrat to win it. It might be very blue and much easier to win. It might be in between. We won't know until September. So what we're going to do is keep the campaign open until September and then see what happens and then make a decision on what to do with the new district. But we are going to develop a way to fundraise that does not involve so much call time. And if we can do that, we can free. It's like Neo in the Matrix, really. All the Congress people plugged into hours and hours of fundraising and all the donors getting those phone calls. We can free them from it so they can actually legislate. I want to do that. I want to try to help do that. And if I can't get there, I can share what I've learned with someone else who can finish it. Yeah. Well, we are um, running up against our time together and I want to kind of maybe start to wrap up. But I think you're the perfect person to solve that problem, right? I do because my whole belief, and this is exactly why we do this show again, is that each one of these little threads adds up to what is the mosaic of your life and I believe makes perfect sense when it's all kind of said and done. And I think your experience in each one of those jobs where you know you were counted out or discriminated against or whatever else was happening along the way and your perseverance and your courage and your expertise in uh, digital media, right? And and working with large groups like you did, you know, with women in digital and the sensitivities that come in from your parents, right? All of that makes you, I think, super well positioned to solve this problem. And this would be a great problem to solve. It would, so, yeah. so maybe as we just wrap up, you know, talk a little bit about you know, what's next? If you want to talk a little bit about good now, 
you know, tell me a little bit about kind of where you're landing and where you're going. Yeah. So I went from this, you know, logically, when you lose like that publicly, it's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for me and for all of us, for all of the people of my district who want, you know, representation, really. And it was just, it was, it was super sad, of course. And as I was working through it, I thought, what, where am I going to go from this? And I, you know, I, and I think when you face loss, you just have got to learn from it and again, turn it into a strength. And, so I took my old agency, which had been dormant for for a while. Um, when I went off to build the Women's Network, I kind of parked it in the garage and decided, you know, I can do work for good causes and brands who are who are purpose driven, but also for candidates, for political candidates. And so I rebranded my agency to Good Now. That's it's goodisnow.com is the website. And it's been phenomenal. We're actually booked through the end of April already. <laughs> I haven't even done any. I, the, this work is just coming to us. We are working with some candidates and, and that's incredible, but also some really good cause-oriented brands. And it's so fulfilling. But I also have decided to, to, to keep the campaign open because the reason I was running was to take one for the team. And that has not changed. We've got to keep that campaign alive because uh, you know my daughter, when we were driving, my stepdaughter, we were driving around and she would see the campaign signs and she said, is that weird to see your name on the signs? And I said, you know, it, no, because that in that context, that's not my name. Then Elena stands for something else. It's not me. It's us. And it's what we all want to achieve. And that is a beautiful thing. And so when I see that sign, I don't see my name. I see us and I see what they want. I see what voters want. I see what Americans want. And we've got to keep that torch alive and that hope alive until the redistricting. And maybe it'll give people spirit and fire to, to fight for fair redistricting because this is once every 10 years. And if I can take myself away from my personal injury, you know, my sadness of losing, which is, is really, I think, kind of a in this context... A bit of a selfish. You got to go through it, but I, you've got to snap out of it at a certain point because you're here for a greater reason, and you've got to dedicate yourself to solving those bigger problems. So that's that's what I want to do. I'm really thrilled. I'm so relieved I got out of my little temporary sadness from losing because I hate it. It was sad. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't like to be sad for too long, but you have to allow it. You have to go through your grief, and it's a tough time for our country, man. I mean, you know this. This is we're nowhere near through this. We are nowhere yeah. near. Yeah. Well, I want to um, just wrap up there. I think that um, what you know kind of comes through in this last message around being with the sadness and then moving on, which I think is exactly right. I, I do think there is some level of sitting in it that is necessary, um, and then you, you know you've got to move on, and you've done that in the past, right? You know, you did that in pretty profound ways when you lost your father. You've done that, you know, probably as you move through your marriage and other parts of your career. And so I think you're pretty damn good at doing it. I'm glad that you've landed here, both with Good Now, um, goodisnow.com. If you guys want to find Elena, we'll also put show notes, but also, you know, in keeping the campaign open, this redistricting, redistricting could be huge. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today and everything that you're up to and your friendship and you've got my support. So, uh, you know, let's keep going. Thank you, Brett. And thanks to everyone for listening. 
Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.